Hey, it's Pastor Mike. Before we get to today's episode, I want you to know that we at Time of Grace have a ton of resources to help you in your walk of faith. From our TV program, to daily devotions, to our Grace Talks video devotions, to podcasts, to our blog, to books, to other books, to still more books, uh, whatever you're looking for and however you best learn, you can stay rooted in Jesus by taking time out for God's word every day. If you're interested, just go to timeofgrace.org to sign up for our daily email. Now, onto today's episode. Um, we have a holy book. We, we have high standards of love. There are commandments and there are doctrines. But more than anything, I want you to know that Christianity is not an Ivy League religion. Uh, it's one for killers, like Saul, and sinners, like you. So a few decades ago, a massive conference of religious scholars was held over in Europe. And as the scholars all gathered around tables and pulled up their chairs, at one point they got into a discussion whether there was anything particularly unique about the Christian faith. I mean, was it the fact that Christians have a, a holy book that they think comes from God? Well, no, lots of religions have holy books. Uh, was it the fact that they had personal prayers with a higher power? No, lots of religions promote that too. Was it a belief in an afterlife, a heaven or hell? No, it wasn't that. Was it doctrine? No commandments? No rules for living? No religious leaders in fancy hats? No, most <laughs> religions have that. And as they were debating, uh, the legend says that C.S. Lewis walked into the room. You know that name? Uh, he was the Oxford scholar who was an atheist until intellectually he thought about it and through God's grace became a Christian in his early 30s. And the question was posed to him, uh, Mr. Lewis, is there anything unique about the faith that you believe in? And he said, well, that's easy. Grace. And he was right. Now, whether you're a Christian here today or not, um, factually, if you would compare the different philosophies and religions and thought systems and worldviews of the world, you would find out that what makes Jesus and his followers very unique is a teaching called grace. Uh, read the four Gospels, the biographies of Jesus. Uh, read the letters of the New Testament by Peter and Paul and James and John, people who knew Jesus personally. And what you will find is that these religious men were not religious in the general sense of the world. They were religious in a very specific way that was founded and based upon this loaded word called grace. Uh, in fact, I had a chance to read every single passage that they wrote that included that word grace, and here's what I found out. According to the New Testament, grace reaches people, grace appears to people, grace is poured out on people, so that they find grace, receive grace, believe by grace, and share in grace. Uh, if you're a Christian, according to the New Testament, you are chosen by grace, called by grace, saved by grace, justified by grace, living in grace, and living under grace. They said that grace is with us, grace works in us, and grace is sufficient for us. 
They went on to claim that grace overflows, grace increases, grace reigns, grace strengthens, grace gives access to God. That's why we set our hope on grace, grow in grace, and preach the glorious grace of God. That's a lot of grace. (laughs) In fact, here's a fun fact. In the Bible, there are 66 different books. The last book is Revelation. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, there are 22 chapters. In that last chapter, Revelation 22, there are 21 verses. And you know what the very last book, the very last chapter, the very last verse, the very last word of the entire Bible is? Say it with me. It's amen. Yeah, I'll actually show you the passage. So Revelation 20, sorry, I set you up there. (laughs) The last verse says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. It's like the Bible insists on getting the last word of grace and, and all the author can say is, Amen. Because people who know Jesus and follow Jesus, they're not just generally religious. Do we pray? Yes. Do we have doctrine? Sure. Do we have a holy book? Absolutely. But what makes this faith so unique, objectively unique, is this one word, grace. Which kind of begs the question, okay, well, what is it? What's a simple definition that made Jesus stand out in a world where so many people were generally religious? That's what I want to answer for you today. Uh, Whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus, kind of new to the church thing, or you're just here with a friend or or watching on TV for the first time, uh, today I want to give you a really short, concise, clear, and I hope compelling definition of grace. But instead of just starting with an open dictionary, I want to start by telling you a story. A story of the first century man who was the poster boy for the concept of grace. Uh, We call him Paul or St. Paul or the Apostle Paul. His, His mom and dad called him Saul. That was his given name. And here's a fun fact. Uh, Did you know that the Apostle Paul wrote 28% of the total words of the New Testament? It's a word count. He's got about one-fourth of the New Testament. But if you would track the word grace, he is responsible for 73% of its usages. God chose Paul to write 13 letters in the Bible, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Every single one of them, every single one begins with the word grace. I'm not trying to trick you this time. And it also ends with the word grace. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace to you, grace to you, the grace of the Lord Jesus. Like, it didn't matter who he was talking to, Paul wanted to make sure that the first word and the last word was the word grace. Uh, The internet hadn't been invented, but if it would have, I'm sure Paul would have copyrighted grace.com. Paul was single and childless, but if he had met a special someone and had daughters, I bet he would have named them Grace, Gracie, and Maybe Gray Gray. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> he loved it. He, he couldn't get enough of it. If you would have met Paul, I can guarantee in the first minute he would have dropped the word because Paul's whole life was shaped and changed and motivated and driven by grace. So if you have a Bible with you or you just want to follow along on the screen, here's Acts chapter 9, the story of Paul, a.k.a. Saul. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
Paul was deeply religious, profoundly Jewish. He, He loved the Old Testament, and he thought that Jesus was not the guy. And so Christianity was like this wildfire that was spreading fast, and Paul thought that he had a calling from God to stop it. Now, later in the New Testament, Paul will describe himself as a man who was obsessed, zealous, violent, and we catch that in this text as we find out he was breathing out murderous threats against the early Christians. Uh, when I think of Saul, at least in the past year or two, I, I think of him like an evil Mandalorian. Have you seen that show just yet? Like, if you come face to face with the Mandalorian, you are in trouble. He's stronger than you. He's more well-equipped than you. He will hunt you down. Saul was like a bad bounty hunter. And so it, it didn't matter, male or female, he didn't discriminate by gender. If he could track you down, find you, arrest you, drag you back to Jerusalem where you would be killed for simply believing in Jesus. And Paul was absolutely convinced that he was doing the right thing because Jesus claimed to be God and he categorically was not. Until one day, Paul met God and found out that his name was Jesus. Verse 3. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Uh, you know, organized religion isn't too popular these days. Uh, the, the scandals, the, the priests, the pastors, the infidelity, the, the abuse, and all of it. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people just get in this mindset and probably if you're watching at home, maybe you've felt this mindset that, you know, you and God are, are going to be close. And you're going to love him and you're going to talk to him and you're going to worship him, but, but you don't need this, right? You know, pastor, church, the, the structure, you know, walking into a building doesn't make you close to God. And so you, you kind of think, you know, organized religion is the problem and true spirituality is the solution. But then you know what happens? You read the Bible. Do you know what the entire Bible is about? Organized religion. Let me take you back to the Old Testament where where God calls a man named Moses and he sets apart the Levites to be the priest and there's the high priest and there's certain festivals, there's structure where you had to attend and organize religion. And you get to Jesus and how does he grow up? The Bible says it was his custom to attend church, the synagogue, week after week after week Jesus, more than anyone, knew knew the flaws and sins that existed within the church, but what did he do every single weekend? He attended organized religion. And then when he launched this religion, claiming, I'm the Messiah, did he just say to his disciples, hey, you you know, you do you, just connect with God, however. No, He, he sent them out with authority and they established communities. And in different cities in the book of Acts, they plant churches with pastors. And then you read the rest of the Bible and you know what it is. Romans was written too, 
an organized religion. First Corinthians, an organized religion. Second Corinthians, an organized religion. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all organized religions. Thessalonians, organized religions. Ah, Timothy. That was just one guy, right? Do you know what Timothy was? A pastor of an organized religion. Titus, aha, maybe he's the guy. Nope, he was a pastor on the island of Crete, a bishop who was appointing pastors so the whole Christian church could be organized on that island. You get to the book of Revelation and Jesus speaks. Who does he speak to? Seven different organized religions. And from cover to cover, you find out that Jesus does not have a single good word for people who are solo in their spirituality. And in a thousand different ways, this happens to people who actually listen to Jesus. We, we think we're doing okay, and he just, he, he runs the light. Boom. And like Paul, we feel so convicted, and it, it's like we can't eat, we, we can't think, and we wonder, what is God going to do to me? That's how Ruth Graham felt. Uh, Ruth is one of the children of Billy Graham, the famous Christian evangelist who died back in 2018. After a pretty messy divorce a few years ago, Ruth fell in love again and she fell in love really fast. Um, her, her grown children were pretty concerned that they weren't sure about this new guy that mom was dating. And Billy Graham and his wife were, were very concerned. It just seemed so fast that she was diving into the relationship pool after a very painful divorce. But Ruth believed the message of our culture. That you have to be true to yourself. You have to trust your gut. You have to follow your heart. And, and so just after six months of knowing a man, she took her vows and she married for the second time. But one day later, literally one day, she saw it. She saw up close all the red flags that her parents and her own children were worried about. And within a month, she was so afraid of the man that she had married that she packed up her things and she left. And she was so embarrassed. Everyone saw it, but in her desire for love, she hadn't seen it. And she wanted to run and she wanted to hide and, and she didn't want to see her parents face to face and tell them the, the tragic and heartbreaking news. But she knew she had to. She couldn't avoid her parents forever. And so she drove home to see her father. In her book about forgiveness, here's how she tells the story. As I rounded the last bend in my parents' driveway, I saw my father standing, waiting. The time had come. As I turned off the ignition, my father approached. I opened the car door and he spread his long arms wide. He wrapped me in his tight embrace and he said, Welcome home. I was wrapped in grace, unmerited, undeserved, merciful, generous. Billy Graham was not God, but he modeled God's grace for me. Never again would the theological definition of grace be just an academic concept. It was now a personal experience. Let's finish up the story in Acts chapter 9. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. 
The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Oh, Lord? (laughs) Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Please picture this for a second. He entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother, Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. (laughs) Oh, I love the ending of that story so much. Ananias, like, uh, Jesus. (laughs) Maybe you haven't heard the rumors. He came here to kill me. Yeah. And Jesus says, no, go. You're right, Ananias, he doesn't deserve it. He's not worthy of it, but that's not the point of it. Go. I've chosen him. I've loved him. I've spoken to him, and I've saved him. And if you catch the details of the story, you get the Christian faith. Brother, Ananias said, Brother, you know, isn't it like apprentice, trainee, we'll give you a year, fix the karma, balance out the scales? You're going to invite him to the table with the Father on day one? Yep. Brother, Immediately, he was baptized. Immediately, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, he spent time with the disciples in Damascus. Any religion or philosophy that makes you earn it would have taken Paul a lifetime to fix what he had broken. But Jesus founded a religion that was based on grace, and so immediately, Paul could be loved, saved, and forgiven. Did he deserve any of it? Not a chance. And that's grace. If you're taking notes today, I'd love for you to grab a pen and write down this simple definition. It's the one that I grew up with in the Christian church. Grace is undeserved love. Paul didn't deserve it, but Jesus still gave it. He had no right to it, but Jesus still showed it. Saul deserved to be struck with a lightning bolt. Instead, Jesus struck him with love. Grace. And it's undeserved love that's not just for Paul, a.k.a. Saul. It's not just for Peter and Matthew. It's not just for James and John. It is for people like you and people like me. Uh, I don't know most of your stories. I don't know what happened in the last 24 hours, the last seven days, or the last few decades, but I can tell you this, that Christianity is uniquely full of grace. We have a holy book, we we have high standards of love, there are commandments and there are doctrines, but more than anything, I want you to know that Christianity is not an Ivy League religion. 
It's one for killers, like Saul, and sinners, like you. It's the religion for tax collectors like Matthew and troublemakers like many of us. It's for prostitutes and people who've slept around. It's for people who doubt and those who have been filled with demons. Christianity is for registered sex offenders and bulldozer moms who both confess the same fact that they have fallen short of God's love, but they have been made perfect by the crazy, incredible love of Jesus Christ. So friends, I want to encourage you, confess your sins and call on the name of Jesus Christ because grace makes bad people good and grace makes relatively good people good enough. Without Jesus and without grace, you can't get to heaven, you included. But with Jesus and with grace, anyone can get to heaven, you included. And that is the uniquely surprising, beautiful, and life-changing message that sets the Christian faith apart. Grace is what Agnes experienced many years ago. Uh, author Tony Campolo tells the story that uh, he had a, a business trip, I believe, in Honolulu. And because of the jet lag, he couldn't sleep and found himself up at 3 o'clock in the morning. So he went to a local diner, kind of a greasy spoon with a, a rather rough around the edges owner, big belly, white t-shirt, stained with grease, and he found himself a, a stool at the diner counter, and at 3.30 is when the prostitute showed up. Apparently, their shift ended about that time, and it was their evening custom to gather at this diner, and so here this Christian man sits with a prostitute on one side and a prostitute on the other, and the prostitutes are talking over him, and, and one of them says to the other prostitutes, uh, tomorrow's my birthday. And the others gave her grief. They said, well, what, do you want a cake? And the woman, whose name we found out is Agnes, uh, quietly admitted, I've never had a cake in my whole life. And so they finished their meal at the diner, they left, and, and that's when Tony, the, the Christian, had an idea. Uh, he leaned over the counter and he asked uh, the owner of the diner, do you think I could throw Agnes a birthday party? And the diner said, let's do it. <laughs> and so he spent the next day finding streamers and he hung them up, big sign with markers, happy birthday, Agnes. The owner of the diner's wife made a cake, put the candles in, and word quietly spread, and Agnes never find out. And that evening, about, about three o'clock in the morning, every prostitute in town was crammed into that little diner. And then Agnes came through the front door. And they said, Happy birthday! And she was so amazed, her knees buckled. A couple of other prostitutes caught her, and they sat her down in a booth, and when she gathered herself, they brought over her first ever birthday cake. And they sang, and they blew out the candles, and the owner of the diner brought over a knife, and he said, cut the cake, Agnes. And she just stared at it. Go ahead, Agnes, cut the cake. And she stared some more. And she looked up at everyone and she said, if I promise to come right back, could I take the cake? I want to show my mom. And the prostitute picked up her birthday cake and she walked out the door 
And everyone stared at each other in silence. And the owner of the diner asked Tony, what kind of church do you go to? And in a moment, he claims of spiritual inspiration and guidance. He said, I go to the kind of church that throws a party for a prostitute. A prostitute gets a party? That's grace. Saul gets saved? That's grace. God looks at us and he smiles? That's amazing. And that's grace. So if I could quote the very last book, the very last chapter, the very last verse, and the very last words of this uniquely grace-filled faith, I would say this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. And everyone who is saved by grace said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for amazing grace. Um, if you only save the top 10% of moral people, um, God, if you only saved half, I don't know what I would think. <laughs> I don't know how I could go through life with any kind of confidence. None of us could. So, so thank you, God, that you are not like that. Thank you that you could be Paul, the worst of sinners, and yet be saved. Thank you that anyone here today, anyone listening, that there is still a chance that they can come to you, confess their sins, hold on to Jesus, and be a brother, a sister, one of your sons or daughters. Thank you, Father, that when we come home to you in repentance, your arms are open wide and you say, welcome home. Thank you, Jesus, for doing everything that every spiritual gift could be ours. We love you so much, but we know that you loved us first. Not because we earned it and not because we deserved it, but because you're the kind of Savior who is full of grace. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Pop quiz. What did Jesus talk about the most? I'll give you three seconds to answer. <laughs> did you say love or forgiveness? Maybe heaven? If so, you are absolutely wrong. <laughs> the correct answer to my pop quiz is the kingdom of God. Okay, here's a bigger question. Do you know what that means? The kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, Jesus' number one teaching, is the place where God has the ultimate authority and he provides eternal safety. We might say it this way, it's the heart where Jesus is both Lord and Savior, authority and safety, that is the kingdom of God. And to be honest, I never knew that. I read that phrase in my Bible for so many years without slowing down to think exactly what those words meant. But now once I figured it out, I'll never forget it. Sometimes we just have to slow down to fire up our faith. And that's why I want you to have this brand new book called 30 Words to Fire Up Your Faith. You probably heard of words like blessed, or grace, maybe even fancy churchy ones like atonement. But have you ever slowed down long enough to figure out what they mean? In this book, which is a unique combination of devotions on scripture and activities like puzzles and fill in the blanks and drawings, we're gonna go deep into some of the Bible's biggest words. And you're gonna find out just like I did that when we slow down to understand what the scripture is actually saying, God does great things for our faith. 
30 Words to Fire Up Your Faith is our way of thanking you for your financial support. Request yours when you give by calling 800-661-3311, visit timeofgrace.org, write us at P.O. Box 301, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 53201, or text TIME to 313131 to give today. Grace doesn't end here. Visit timeofgrace.org and explore encouraging resources or sign up for our daily email and have everything delivered right to your inbox. Like our Grace Moments devotions, Grace Talks devotional videos, blog, and podcasts. Follow us on social media where you'll find a supportive Christian community. If you need prayer, give us a call and let us know what's on your heart. Thank you so much for your support. See you next week on Time of Grace.